This is Recorded Future, Inside Threat Intelligence for Cybersecurity. Hello, everyone, and thanks for joining us for Episode 69 of the Recorded Future podcast. I'm Dave Bittner from the CyberWire. Our guest today is Gary Hayslip. He's Vice President and Chief Information Security Officer at WebRoot, a cybersecurity and threat intelligence company. Prior to joining WebRoot, he was the CISO for the city of San Diego, and before that served active duty with the U.S. Navy and as a U.S. federal government employee. He's the author of the CISO Desk Reference Guide and is an active cyber evangelist and popular keynote speaker. He shares his thoughts on team building, recruiting talent in a highly competitive jobs market, and the importance of actionable threat intelligence. Stay with us. Well, I mean, I've been in you know the cybersecurity field, and I've been a CISO for you know over the last ten years. You know, I spent four years as the CISO for the city of San Diego. Uh, while at the city of San Diego, I was working with a lot of the different you know cyber startups you know here in San Diego, and I partnered with several of them as I was building out the security program that we were using to protect a lot of our smart city projects, and it just happened to be. You know, in that process, I met a um, one of the local startups here called uh, Cyberflow Analytics, and they were purchased by Webroot. While Webroot was doing due diligence on them and taking a look at them, I guess they got to know me. And then later on at um, you know RSA, you know they offered me the uh, the position, and I thought it was pretty intriguing. I had been thinking about you know leaving um, public side and coming over to private industry, anyhow, and um, I really, you know, like the company and I like the people. And so I decided to go ahead and step over. Can you give us a, a little idea of what the contrast is between the, the time you spent in the public sector and the types of things you take care of now at a place like Webroot? On the public side, like I said, you know, I, you know, I was in the military for 20 years and then was, uh, you know, federal civil service for almost seven years, you know, and then I was with the city of San Diego for four. So you know, got exp- you know extensive experience on the public side, you know, and then stepped over and I've been in private, you know, now for about the private industry side for about the last 18 months. There's a big difference, you know, and I find a lot of it is the um, revenue. You know, revenue drives a lot of the things that happen in private industry. You know, on the public side, there is no such thing as, you know, revenue. It's just taxpayer dollar. That's always there. You know, you may have different amounts of it every year, but it's predominantly always there, you know, so there's different motivators for services that are done. There's different motivators for how you do your job. And I've had to adjust on, you know, being in private industry on the fact that how quickly things can move. If a organization needs to go ahead and reorganize and move departments and people around because they're, you know, they've got new products that are coming online and they want to go ahead and capture a chunk of the market, you know, market before, competitors catch up, they'll do that quickly. Where like on the public side, you know, I've worked for organizations in the, the government where we needed to make a change and, and reorganize, you know, three years later, we were still doing it, still talking about it. Hmm. You know, so, you know, it's, it is very different in some ways, you know, just the speed and how quickly things can get done. But 
with that said, though, I mean, you know, I've been a government CISO and I've been a public, you know, and then I've been a private industry CISO. Um, a lot of the threats are relatively the same. You know, scale may be a little different. And, you know, we still have problems with, you know, educating employees and educating executive staff. You still have issues, you know, following cyber hygiene and trying to, trying to manage things. The biggest difference you find a lot of times is on the federal side, um, you know, as a CISO, risk is pretty much black and white. Follow, you use NIST as your framework. You know, there's very little leeway as to how much room you have to, um, you know, be compliant or not. You know, I used to joke that um, as a federal CISO, I had a bit of a hammer in which I could beat people and make them be compliant and make them follow what I needed to do. When I transitioned to being a CISO at the city, that kind of went away because, you know, cities don't really, you know, they don't really follow any kind of framework or any kind of directives. Um, it's suggested, you know, mm-hmm. you know, the state of California can make suggestions that the cities should follow for data privacy or for cybersecurity. But in the end game, it's really up to the city, you know, to what they want to do, you know, because it's their funds. When I got to the city of San Diego, I had to totally adjust how I manage security teams. And I had to totally adjust how I, you know, approach the organization and how on managing our, you know, our risk. Because, um, you know, when I worked for DOD, you know, they had to follow things. When I was at the city, they didn't have to listen to me at all. So, I mean, it's like, you know, you start having to get out and meet people. You start having to build relationships. You start having to collaborate so in some ways, you know, working at a city was very much like um, private industry. Can you describe to us what is the process that you've used for building those security teams? For me, you know, building out my teams, a lot of it is you know, one of the first things I do when I come into an organization is you know, I go out and I do a lot of the, the meet and greet, you know, where I'm going out and I'm talking with the different departments and I'm kind of figuring out, okay, what do they know about information security what do they know about my my department what are they uh, what services are we providing them you know what things are screwed up what things are they angry about you know and in talking to them i find out you know what applications and what data and what things are important for them to be able to do the job and then i come back and um, i spend time with my staff figuring out okay what are we doing? What services are we providing? What's our security stack? What technologies are ours? And I start making these lists of, so I can better understand from a, from a service perspective what value we provide to the business. And once I understand that, you know, and I understand the, the technologies and the different services and everything that we're providing to the organization and the various business units, you know, I jump into um, my, you know, the current people I have on my staff I'll jump into their uh, job descriptions and make sure they're all updated. And I'll talk with HR and get an idea as to um, what they're recruiting and what they've recruited in the past. Because I find a lot of um, HRs that I've worked with don't really understand how to recruit cybersecurity. Mm. It's very, very different. They honestly think they're just recruiting an IT person. And I'm like, no, 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 no. There's different skill sets. Plus the fact that they're in high demand and you're going to find um, you don't recruit a you know, a, a cybersecurity position like you do an IT position. They're very, they're very unique. You know, both of them are different. And so I spend a lot of time just understanding my current state, where my team's at and what we're doing 
so that I can then, you know, one, update everyone's job descriptions, and then two, figure out what I have missing, you know, or what I'm short on, what skills, what training my staff needs. And then from that, I start, uh, I'll do a full assessment, you know, like a risk assessment of the organization so I can kind of establish a baseline of where we're at, and that'll basically result into like a strategic plan and, and projects that we're going to be doing, you know, over the next upcoming years. And all of that goes into you know, managing the team. Because as I start looking at the security stack and figuring out what may need to be changed out or what may need to be updated, I then look at my staff and figure out, okay, how badly training-wise, you know, what do these guys need? It doesn't help me if I'm looking at, okay, hey, I want to go full on and I want to put in uh, and do orchestration and I want to go ahead and upgrade and this, that, and the other if none of my guys know how to you know, do Python mm-hmm. and know how to script. You know, you know, I mean, and that's one of the things I got to take a look at as I'm reviewing everything. It gives me, I, not only do I establish, you know, a risk baseline for my organization, I really establish a baseline for my security program itself. And with that baseline, I can start setting up, okay, what kind of training do I need? Do I need more FTEs? And if so, what kind of skill sets do I need from them? I actually started, um, I've done this before when I was, with DOD and at the city, and I'm doing it here, where I actually will build a matrix where I list all of my people, what certs they have, what kind of skill sets and experience they have, and then I start balancing out as to, you know, what trainings, you know, I need to start sending them to because I need my staff at a certain maturity level before I can bring in certain technologies. I'm not going to bring in something and then none of my people can use it because they don't have, you know, they're not ready for it yet. So I got to kind of balance the technology with the people. Now, you mentioned the difference between hiring IT folks and cybersecurity folks. Can we dig into that a little bit? What are the differences there? The way I kind of look at it is there's nothing good or bad, you know, about it, actually. I mean, I come from IT. I mean, I was a network architect. I was, you know, I was a software developer. I got into security and got into forensics. And, um, and I find a lot of, uh, you know, most... You know, CISOs that I know, especially a lot of them that come from uh, the military, that come from DOD, many of us um, were in network engineering before, you know, and stuff like that before we even got into security. And that's one of the things, you know, for people that I mentor, you know, I tell them, you know, you should look at getting some network experience and everything first before you get heavily in this into security so that way you better understand how networks are put together and how data flows and the different protocols that I even recommend that they spend time learning cloud and learning um, you know some of the different platforms and stuff because it helps them visualize how networks are put together before you start thinking about security controls and how to protect them and so I mean you know, the differences I find you know between the two is that and I used to be a CIO so I used to hire you know IT people some of it is mindset and some of it is skills. You know, IT is very um, operational related. It's very current state. You know, what's happening today, I need to have email up. I need to have internet up. These applications need to be available. Boom, boom, boom. It's happening right now. Security is happening operationally right now, but it's also more of a long-term view. And it's also more of an enterprise view. Because security is not in a box. I mean, cyber pretty much flows through all the business units, you know, um, because it's really orientated around data, you know, and it's orientated around, um, you know, because the networks, to me, the networks don't really have 
any solid perimeters anymore because perimeters are floating around on tablets and smartphones and all kinds of other devices. You know, so the security is more orientated towards what the organization does with its data and where its data is at and who they're partnered with and who's using that data. And as more and more organizations, you know, move into the cloud and leverage cloud, you know, now data is international. <laughs> you know, it's all over the place. The more, you know, the more mature security programs, you're getting involved with cloud. You're getting involved with uh, geolocation-wise. Where is my data? Am I, am I able to bring that up? Am I able to, you know, pull reports to see, you know, where it's at? If I'm looking at it from an incident response perspective, you know, am I taking into account that, you know, we are a cloud-oriented organization and that, you know, we're spread across the globe, not just located in one area? Again, uh, when I go ahead and I kind of balance those, when I look at someone who's, you know, hey, they were a network engineer and they've done firewalls and stuff and they've been kind of very orientated towards that particular thing, where the security team, you know, I kind of look at is we're a lot broader focused because of the way cybersecurity is used today. And, you know, and I'll be honest with you, I mean, right now, you know, because of the um, the shortages of being able to find, you know, security talent, especially medium to senior level, uh, you know, people, you know, I'm even looking at, you know, I have no problem hiring network engineers and just converting them over to security or hiring, you know, uh, you know, people that know, you know, guys that know DevOps that are, you know, developers that now want to get into security. I mean, I'm more than happy to go ahead and, uh, you know, take someone who has those skill sets and they're very interested in security and just go ahead and train them. You know, it's it's becoming harder and harder to um, find, you know, talent. Here in San Diego, there's a very large, you know, competition, you know, for talent because of all the different cyber organizations and everything here. Hmm. Now, how much of the work of a CISO do you suppose is... Uh, technical versus uh, diplomacy uh, versus you're being a translator between the higher level people, the board, the the uh, the other folks uh, at, at that board level. I would say it's probably about um, I probably it's probably about sixty forty. Yeah, about sixty percent of the time, it's more technical because you're working with your teams or you're working with peers and you're solving risk issues or you're solving, you know, technology, you know, issues, you're trying to orchestrate or trying to, you know, connect, you know, different platforms and share data. And a lot of that is, is technical. So, I mean, you know, you, you still have to be able to speak that language and understand, you know, security and risk and be able to work with the, the different, you know, not just the, the network engineers or the security architects, but also people in DevOps. And then the other 40% is, the management, the politics, the strategy, the uh, evangelizing, you know, why security is important to the organization, not just to internally to employees, but also to partners and also being able to speak to the board. I mean, when you, you know, present to the board, you know, you don't talk, you know, technology, you don't talk threats and vulnerabilities. It's really a business discussion. You know, you've got to go ahead and take that, uh, you know, that whole you know, technical speak that you're used to, you know, chattering away when you're talking with other uh, other CISOs and other security people and flip it and instead talk about risk, you know, talk about, you know, loss of services, talk about, you know, 
you know, impact to business operations. It's the investment I did several years ago in my MBA is definitely paying off. Hmm. You know, I mean, I did that on purpose just so that I would better understand that side of the business. Yeah, that's a really interesting insight. Um, I, I want to uh, switch gears a little bit and talk about threat intelligence, uh, as we do on this show. Uh, so what is your take on threat intelligence? Where do you think it fits in? What's the importance that it plays? I honestly look at threat intelligence as going ahead and I'm putting in security controls in place to go ahead and protect my organization, to go ahead and reduce risk. And I look at threat intelligence as something that helps basically like it enhances it. You know what I'm saying? Hmm. I mean, I've got, I've got limited resources, you know, for technology, for my staff. And so when I am, you know, deploying these things and, and putting controls in place, you know, I need ways to be able to figure out, okay, to prioritize, you know, what do we mitigate first, you know, to prioritize which controls are more important than others. Um, from an incident response perspective, you know, which things should be remediated first because they have more of an impact on the organization. You know, threat intelligence helps us do a lot of that. You know, it goes ahead and it um, it helps us uh, prioritize, not just um, being able to go ahead and, you know, train my staff on how to respond to incidents and everything. It also helps me prioritize as to, you know, which vulnerabilities should we patch first because they're, you know, active in the wild vice uh, just using a CVE score. You know, I kind of like to go ahead and weigh, you know, several things as I'm looking at, you know, patches and I'm looking at, you know, things that we need to remediate or fix. Yeah, and it, it strikes me, I mean, there's that difference between information and intelligence and in that, that you really want uh, things to be actionable. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and not only, you know, uh, in fact, um, our CTO here at WebRoot, uh, Hal Lonis, he likes to say real threat intelligence, you know, and cause he's talking about, you know, threat intelligence that's real time and that it's contextual. I've given several talks on this, and it's, you know, it's fascinating just the thousands of different feeds out there you know, and just, you know, services, whether it's, um, you know, open source or whether it's, you know, a paid service, there's tons of different types of threat intelligence out there. Because when you think about it, almost anything that creates a log can be used as intelligence. You know, and it's up to the organization as to really how they want to use it, whether it's internal intelligence, you know, stuff that they've collected over time because of, you know, previous breaches that they've had before and that kind of data, they can tell, okay, hey, we're getting hit by these types of phishing and spam emails. So, hey, let's change our uh, employer, you know, our employee training to incorporate, you know, something new to try to reduce these numbers, you know, or whether it's external threat intelligence that, hey, we're signing up for this service, but we've gone in and done some, you know, check in the boxes because, you know, we don't want the whole thing, the big broad swath of data, because 80% of it doesn't really apply to us. If we're a, if we're an, you know, a company that's using SAP, why do I want threat intelligence on Oracle? You know, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> or if we're a, you know, a company that's um, using some type, you know, using Cisco devices, well, I definitely want, you know, threat intel on Cisco. You know, I don't want threat intel on Juniper. I want things that apply. You know, and then not only do I you know, want, you know, data that applies to my infrastructure and my stack that I currently have installed. I want, you know, threat intelligence that's not two years old. I want threat intelligence that's, you know, real time or as close to real time as possible. So that way, at least I'm looking at stuff that's current 
it helps me prioritize, okay, hey, what do we need to, you know, what do we need to work on? And I think that's a big discussion I, I find is that, like, you know, for here, for, for WebRoot, you know, predominantly most of our customers are MSP or the SMB market. The SMB market is like Swamp just trying to do basic hygiene, just doing the basic security stuff that they can, you know, do to go ahead and, you know, stay in business. Threat intelligence, you know, to me tends to be one of those mature type of security controls that organizations, you know, start doing as they grow. You know, so a lot of times they end up contracting it out to, you know, someone who's a service provider and, you know, they want their service provider to handle that kind of stuff. You know, and, and that's where I kind of look at it, whether it's an MSP doing it or whether it's a, um, you know, the business doing it. To me, it's a, um, it's an enhancement to your security controls. You know, it helps you, you know, make choices and prioritize what to do with the limited resources that you have, you know, the limited security budget that you have. So at least, you know, the money that you're spending, the FTEs that you're hiring, they're for specific things that are current that actually apply to you. As you look forward, uh, you know, the the general security landscape, is there anything that you think isn't getting the proper attention that it deserves? Is, Is there anything you scratch your head and you think to yourself, boy, people are missing this. We should be paying more attention to this. The interesting thing I find is that, um, you know, we're dealing with an acceleration of threats. For the longest time, it was, you know, it was APT, the, adva- the Advanced Persistent Threats. you got nation states behind there using, you know, advanced malware. You know, now you've got advanced persistent bots, you know, that are using machine learning. And you got smarter, more realistic types of phishing and spam emails that you're seeing. And a lot of this is because of stuff that's they're starting to use AI and machine learning, you know, behind. You know, at Weber, we've been using AI and machine learning for, I think, our first models were back in 2006. We've been using them for quite a long time. You know, but I, what I'm seeing now is the, um, the industry itself is, uh, you know, starting to incorporate that because the threats that we're facing are, um, are incorporating that. They're getting smarter. You know, the adversaries that we're dealing with, uh, they're not stupid. I mean, they're going to go ahead and, honestly, they're going to use a lot of the same tools, technologies, and techniques that we use to make their operations better, you know, to save them money, which kind of sucks because then it makes it harder for us, mm. you, know, you know, to fight the fight. I mean, I, I honestly feel like we're in a digital cold war, you know, in a lot of ways. Some of the biggest things that, you know, that I'm really concerned about when you really think of, you know, the internet on a daily basis and the data that's flowing on the internet and think over 40%, easily 40% of that data is not human traffic it's bot traffic it's there's so much automated stuff that's going on um on networks now and how much of it is um you know is malware based and uh, i you know i I worry about that because we fight about you know we fight it daily you know as my you got young kids as they're uh, getting older and you know they're connected in everything when they get emails and stuff and when they get things as they're in, you know, in college and in school and, you know, just accepting things, they don't really understand that, you know, hey, the Internet's a very dark place. You know, so I, I worry about that a lot. Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting insight. I mean, I think I, I wonder, uh, you know, to use an analogy, I wonder, you know, my parents and, and yours probably had stories about, you know, growing up when, when polio was a, a thing and, and and measles and mumps and you know those sorts of things that we don't really think about because we have effective inoculations against them and i wonder if we'll see similar things with our own kids are there going to be some of these 
these um, problems that we deal with that they'll consider quaint or, you know, for, uh, that their parents had stories of that they just don't have to deal with. But then there'll be new things they have to deal with. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's um, like the, the whole idea about privacy, you know, and how, hmm. you know, I was basically raised that privacy was something that you were born with and it was a God given right. Now it seems like it's a commodity that you buy. I think it's definitely going to be a shift for them. But at the same time, you know, as I spend time with them, it's amazing how quickly they use technology and how quickly they pick things up and because they're just so used to having it around them. Our thanks to Gary Hayslip from Webroot for joining us. If you enjoy this podcast, we hope you'll take the time to rate it and leave a review on iTunes. It really does help people find the show. Don't forget to sign up for the Recorded Future Cyber Daily email, where every day you'll receive the top results for trending technical indicators that are crossing the web. Cyber news, targeted industries, threat actors, exploited vulnerabilities, malware, suspicious IP addresses, and much more. You can find that at recordedfuture.com slash intel. We hope you've enjoyed the show and that you'll subscribe and help spread the word among your colleagues and online. The Recorded Future podcast team includes coordinating producer Amanda McKeown, executive producer Greg Barrett. The show is produced by Pratt Street Media with editor John Petrick, executive producer Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. Music.